Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Hey, I'd like you to do something for me today. I want you to take your Bible out and open it to Ezra 3, and I want you to have a pen. Because today, by the time you leave, I want you to have marked up this chapter, written all over it, so that you will forever remember the principles that are found within this very special text that we're going to look at here this morning. Ezra chapter 3. Let me read it for you, the first eight verses. Now when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shaphtiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of, God of, Israel, of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings mornings and evenings. And they celebrated the Feast of Booths as it is written and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance as each day required. And afterwards there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated and from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month they began to offer these burnt offerings to the Lord but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa according to the permission they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. And now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem and in the second month, Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, they began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. <clears throat> you know, you read a text like that, a very historical text about a very historical moment in time, and I think from the outset of a passage like this, a fair question to answer from the very beginning is, well, this is a great story, but how does it apply to me? And maybe you thought that as we've worked through this, but I want you to know we need to answer that question right at the outset so that this text can become alive to us. And here's how I would answer it. This text applies to anyone who has ever made a mess out of life. Now that probably only applies to a few of you here this morning, so there's gonna be a limited audience. But if you've ever come to a place where you have ruined yourself in some way financially, or perhaps morally, you've made some wrong choices, and out of those choices that you thought would bring such life, they have brought such bitterness. Or maybe you are in contention with a relationship that used to mean a lot to you, but now because of disagreements, there is a tremendous wall built between you. Or maybe you're digging out of the ruins of a parenting style that you thought would work with your children, and now that they've left home, you've discovered it didn't. Or perhaps you've made a mess of your marriage, and the further you go, the worse it becomes, and it feels like you're in the midst of a pile of ruins, 
you're any of those categories, or some maybe that I didn't even mention here this morning, then this text applies to you. And if you know someone who's in the midst of a situation like that, then this text can apply to you as well because you'll be able to offer something of wisdom to them if you listen carefully this morning. You see, in this text, now it may not be so obvious right now, is the, listen, the standard pattern that Scripture presents of how one can transform a life mess into something positive. This is the standard pattern. It's the standard pattern that I can tell you that I have used for years in interacting with people that other counselors and pastors and people who are offering great advice have offered to people. It's something that you can offer, offer as a standard pattern if you're trying to encourage someone who's hurting here today or someone that you know as to how to rebuild their life. The standard pattern is in the verses that I just read to you. And those who follow that standard, that pattern that I've seen over 25 years of ministry, if they stick with it, they find success. And those who, for whatever reason, decide they've got a better way, they not only find that the mess that they were in has not cleared up, but they find that what they've invited is simply double trouble. Now, I know that probably you're looking at it saying, yeah, but this is about a temple. What does this have to do with me? How can this relate to me, this historical event? And I want you to know that so often the Old Testament offers these physical moments, these historical moments that were intended to teach, in fact, spiritual truths. When Abraham offered up his son Isaac or was asked to, that's a historical moment in time, but we know it goes far beyond that moment. That moment teaches us about real faith, faith that puts it all on the line, or in this case, on the altar. It teaches us about entrusting to God the things that mean the most of, to us when God should mean the most. It teaches us from that historical moment about how God so loved us that He was willing to give up His Son and what that must have felt like. And all these spiritual realities flow out of that historical event. And I want you to know out of this text flows the same kind of spiritual realities. Yes, this is about a temple. But when you go from 540 B.C. and go all the way into 1994 A.D., the temple that was there becomes the temple that is here. Because you see, we're the temple of God now. And so all the realities that apply to rebuilding a physical temple also apply to rebuilding a spiritual temple. It applies to rebuilding Robert Lewis or whoever you are. So this morning what I would like to do is move past the physical, although we'll look at it, and talk a lot about the personal applications that apply to you and me. And I want you to see that there's some tremendous secrets to rebuilding a life out of the ruins in this passage. Now the way of restoration begins, if you'll notice on your outline with letter A, and that is this, we must return to the place of blessing. And you might add to that, we must return to the place of blessing by yielding up our lives to a higher authority. We return to the place of blessing by yielding up our lives to a higher authority. I want you to look real closely at verse 1 with me for a moment. It says, Now when the seventh month came, and the sons of Israel were in their cities. Now, I told you I want you to mark your Bible up, so here's two phrases I want you to underline. Underline the seventh month, because by the time you're finished, you're going to have a great pattern for counseling. Underline the seventh month, then underline 
the phrase, the sons of Israel were in their cities. These two phrases, by the way, come together with a potential for some great conflict. Now why? Well, the seventh month is a very holy month in the life of the nation of Israel. The whole month, believe it or not, was to be a Sabbath month, like the seventh day of the week at the Sabbath day. The seventh month in the year of Israel is to be a Sabbath month. It's a very special month. It's intended to have rest and relaxation and reflection and worship and celebration all attached to it, and you're to cease from labor, cease from working. Uh, this month was filled with three great feasts. It started on the first day with the Feast of Trumpets, then it had the Day of Atonement attached to it, then it came on with the Feast of Booze, where they celebrated being released from bondage of Israel. And all through that, Israel was told in the Levitical law, rest, stop working. It would be what we need to hear during the Thanksgiving Christmas season, when it's given to worship and celebration, but it's exhausting. And we'd like to rest, but we don't. But they were commanded to do that. But I want you to note, when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were not in Jerusalem, at least not yet, they were in their cities. They had just returned from 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Their homes, when they arrived in those cities, they were destroyed. They had deteriorated. Their farms were weed infested. There were very few physical necessities provided for them. All they could take back was what they could take with them out of Babylon. And so there they were. And in those times when you had just gotten back to your city, your hometown, and it was destroyed, your focus was going to be in rebuilding your nest, taking care of your business, providing for your family, taking care of the basic necessities of life, but there was a problem. The problem was in all that scurrying and activity and labor and work, the seventh month arrived. And the seventh month was a time to go to Jerusalem and just sit and worship. Now I want you to know for those who are practically minded, that had been hard to do. I mean, I want you to think about it. Would that be not hard for you to do? when your family maybe weren't even sure that you could provide for them, winter is just about to come, because this is September, October time period, and you're supposed to leave it all and go and celebrate for a month? You know, you couldn't do that. You couldn't move that direction. Not physically, unless somewhere in your heart, spiritually, you really believe that the place of blessing was not in the city, but it was in Jerusalem. And it was in a higher authority. It was in God. I like what Benjamin Franklin said in 1787 when he shared the following statement to the Constitutional Convention as it was assembling. He said these words, and I quote, In the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in this room for divine protection. But now have we forgotten this powerful friend or do we imagine we no longer need His assistance? I have lived for a long time, 81 years, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow can fall to the ground without His notice, it is probable that an empire like ours cannot arise without His aid. Oh, those are great, great words. 
But now let's go back to this historical circumstance. And I want you to place yourself there because I don't know about you, but when I make a mess of my life, the last thing I want to do is rest. In fact, if anything, I want to work even more. I want to work even harder. This is a time where when the going gets tough, the tough get going. You've got to get with it. You've got to bear down. You can't worry about how much it hurts. You've got to pick up the pace and make it work. That's America at its best. But oftentimes, in the midst of a deteriorating circumstance, all that extra work doesn't amount for a lot. In fact, sometimes the wisest, sharpest move it's not to do anything. It's just to sit, be quiet, and listen. You know, I have watched people over the years, and they tell me things like this. They can say, you know, I was a real party animal. And there came a place when I hit about 26, 27, that the things I used to do, the party scene that I used to participate in started meaning less and less to me. So you know what I did? I did more and more to get less and less. Longer, harder, more. And then one day, for some unknown reason, I woke up on a Sunday morning and I said, I'm going to church. Didn't really make much sense to me, but I came into a room for the first time with all the activity in my life and I just sat out there, quiet, and I listened for the first time. That's a smart move. I've talked to people who for years have fought against one another in their marriage. Uh, their marriage has continued to deteriorate and the harder they work to get the other person to see their point of view and that they were right and they've been right and when are you going to see that? The harder they worked at that, the worse their marriage became. And finally somebody said, hey, let's go talk to Bob and Betty. They seem like they know what they're doing. And how we got there, we don't know. But one day we're sitting in their living room and Bob and Betty are starting to tell us about their marriage. And all we're doing is sitting, listening, not doing anything. Or the workaholic who's pushed himself to the limit. He's losing his family and he's losing his marriage. And one day he tells his secretary, just hold the calls. He shuts off his computer. He looks across the landscape, the manicured landscape of his corporation he spent his whole life building and he just sits in the quiet of that room and he says nothing but the silence speaks volumes you know sometimes the smartest move is to stop all the frenzy and to somehow scratch around and find your way back to the place of blessing where you don't do anything except listen and then out of what you hear, you respond obediently. And that's what this text is trying to tell us to do. It's trying to tell us that sometimes working harder yields less. But to go to God, to finally go to God and stop all that stuff and just listen is the best move. You know, there's the old proverb that, um, that uh, in the midst of panic, somebody turns to somebody else and says, don't just stand there. Do something. This text totally contradicts that. It says in the midst of, of the mess that's being made, you turn to the person next to you and say, don't just do something. Stand there. 
Just listen. Get back to the place of blessing and listen. And I want you to know that's what Israel did. See, they were in their cities, but look at the last phrase of verse 1. But then the people gathered together as one man in Jerusalem. They put down their hose. They shut the door on their incompleted houses. Uh, their crops were left maybe halfway unharvested in the fields. They went to Jerusalem just to rest, to be quiet. That's a good first step. Let me give you the second step. We must consecrate our lives to God regardless of the circumstances or our feelings. You know what words you find in the English dictionary that comes right before the word consecrate? It's the word conscript. We hear the word conscript used in the military sense where young men are conscripted into the armed forces. They don't want to go, but they get conscripted into the armed forces against their will to serve their country. And I mentioned that word, these two words by one another in the dictionary because I oftentimes see those two words become personalized in two people in a counseling situation. You see, in the rebuilding process with God, as we stop and we listen to God, we will oftentimes early on, now hear this, early on in that counseling process, whether it's through a professional or a friend or just alone in the Word, God will come and bring something to us to do that goes totally contrary to our feelings or the circumstances that we're in. In fact, it may even look ridiculous in light of the circumstances we're in. I want you to hear me. It never fails to happen. Okay? This is a standard pattern. I see it all the time. And the fact that it's happened in your life and you're going, oh, why did this have to happen to me? Why is God asking me to do this? Don't you know how I feel? Can He see the circumstances I'm in? I want you to know that has happened with every person in every age, in every culture that has ever named the name of Jesus Christ. So you're in good company. At just that moment, God is asking us when He says, I want you to do this despite what you feel or your circumstances, He's asking us to go deep and to consecrate our hearts to Him, to voluntarily abandon our lives to Him because we are convinced by faith of His goodness to us and that if we persevere in that direction, we will taste of the goodness of the Lord. And what seems so bitter at the moment will turn to something sweet and fruitful. But you know what I see in counseling a lot? I begin to talk and we look at the Scriptures and they begin to see what they need to do. And you can see one person in that moment consecrate themselves. And you can see the person next to them begin to feel conscripted into obedience that they don't want to be. And they begin to fight with that conscription feeling. And they go along with you for a little while because they, they came to you and they feel like they're obligated to listen for a while. But you can read it on their face, conscripted. And the moment they have an opportunity later outside those counseling doors or in some situation, so when somebody comes and presents to them an alternative that better fits their feelings or better fits the circumstances, not that better fits the Word of God. They abandon ship in a moment. They desert because they were never there to begin with. They were never consecrated to God. 
in Ezra 3, it becomes clear that they had this consecration step in their lives. Look at verse 2. It says, Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, the priest, and Zerubbabel, and his brothers arose, and they built an altar right in the midst of the ruins. Of all things, they didn't start rebuilding the walls of the temple. They just built this altar right in the midst of the ruins. And it was an altar to God to offer burnt offerings on. And they set up this altar on its foundation. They were terrified because of the peoples of their land, but that didn't stop them. They still built an altar and offered burnt offerings on it day and night. They even celebrated the Feast of Booze according to the fixed number of days and continued to offer these burnt offerings. Now, spiritually speaking, I want you to know that Jeshua, this priest, he is in a sense a type of the Holy Spirit. They've been sitting before the Lord, resting, reflecting, worshiping, and he feels moved, so he acts kind of like the Holy Spirit moving to say, we need to do something here, guys. We need to build an altar and just worship through obedience the Lord. And you're wondering, well, what about... I mean, we're just out here in an open field with a bunch of ruins around us. No, the first thing before you ever start working or doing anything, if you're going to rebuild your life, the first thing you do is you worship. You just begin to say, God, I believe you. I trust you. I know this is the right thing to do. And that's what he's asking them to do. But I want you to know, if you were a conscript in that group, you'd have plenty of reasonable arguments why not to do this. You could have said something like, well, this isn't the right time to do this. These aren't the right circumstances. I mean, look at verse 3. It said they were terrified because of the peoples of the land. They were scared to death. Why build this altar? The conscripts could reasonably argue, why are we building an altar when we should be building fortifications to protect ourselves? <laughs> Does that sound reasonable to you? It does to me. And you know, when I watch people try to rebuild their lives, you know one of the first things I hear people start talking about? When they begin to hear about consecrating their lives to God, they begin to say, no, wait a minute, you don't know my husband. Or you don't know this friend I've got. This, he's going to hurt me. I don't have time to take all that energy and just abandon myself to try to do what you're talking about. I, I've got to protect myself. I've got to spend all that energy building walls so my creditors can't get to me and take away all my possessions even though I owe them. I've got to build these walls so, well, what if they decide to divorce me? I'm going to be financially exposed. I've got to build this wall because if I go ask them for forgiveness, they're going to rub my nose in it when really they're the problem. I've got to protect myself. And that's what a conscript would say. I'm terrified. Conscript could also say, hey, what are we doing offering burnt offerings day and night? You see that? They did it day and night. Remember, these people came back with a limited number of material possessions, much of which were animals and crops and things like that, basic necessities. And yet, what Jeshua calls for is that we offer these burnt offerings day and night, free will offerings even. You know what a burnt offering is? A burnt offering, according to Scripture, is where you take the very best of your flock, the best, and bring it up and put your hands on its head and pray over it so that you identify yourself with this animal. And then, as an act of consecration, you cut its throat and kill it. 
and then put it on this offering and burn it all up. Now, here's what a conscript would hear. And put it on an altar and waste it. So that when I'm finished, this prize heifer that I had, this, this piece of livestock that could have been used to build me a whole flock, I burned it all up. It's like taking my, my Lexus, you know, and sticking it on there and just <laughs> widening it up into just a little tin can. Doesn't make any sense. I need it. And not only did I do that, but I was asked to do that over and over and participate. And how am I going to feed my kids? And I mean, the practical mind would have all kinds of reasons to abandon this process. But I want you to know, in rebuilding out of the ruins, I want you to hear me. God will ask you to do things that seem unreasonable and that feel horrible. Whether it's rebuilding a marriage, it's not going to feel good. Whether it's rebuilding a company, it's not going to feel good if you do it right. Rebuilding your reputation, cleansing your conscience, the only way you can proceed at that moment in the rebuilding process is by believing that God's way is not a new mess coming, <laughs> but a way out of the mess that you're in. That it will work because God loves you and is committed to you, and that in time, if you stay faithful, you will see the good hand of the Lord deliver what He has promised to you when He said, I have an abundant life for you. Just trust me. You've got to build the altar of consecration in your heart as the next step. And Ezra 3 tells us that Israel consecrated their lives to God even in spite of the circumstances and even in spite of their feelings. Now I want you to mark, circle, two phrases. They're the keys to this second step. Look at verse 3. Notice the phrase, were terrified. They were terrified. Now hear me, that's the way they felt. They felt terrified. But now look at verse 4 and circle this. But what did they do? I know how they felt. But what did they do? Verse 4, they celebrated. Now, when they were celebrating, do you think they felt like celebrating? No, the point is, they felt terrified. But they went ahead and did it as an act of faith. And that shows the incredible power of the human will that's required to rebuild a life if you choose to rebuild the areas that maybe you have spoiled by thinking you could do it on your own. Feelings rule too many people. Feelings paralyze too many people. They become the ultimate law in a person's life, and they're not. The will is as it responds to truth. And these people set a great pattern for personal health and hygiene. And it's regardless of how you feel, you act on truth. They were terrified, but they celebrated. There's a third step here in this rebuilding process, and that is that we must follow God's Word to the letter. Societies and personalities pretty much follow the same patterns. In every society and every personality, including this church and the people in it, at times get seduced by our own prosperity. Now, things are going well, so we begin to be a little lax when it comes 
to the Scriptures and societies become lax and start thinking they can rewrite the rules of society because everything is going so well for us. It's a constant seduction. And I want you to know in some ways we've done that in the field of law. I'm not picking on lawyers per se, but I want you to know this gives us a good window into what takes place in our own lives as well. In theory, the Constitution, that written document you see, is still the guiding uh, uh, political document, legal document of our land. But over time, in reality, the Constitution starts becoming whatever a judge says it is at a particular time with a particular personality, with a particular philosophical bent. The exchange since our founding fathers has been from the power of a written document to the power of a presiding judge. And that can be traced back to the late 1800s when Christopher Langdell, who was the dean of the Harvard Law School, theorized along what was then popular Darwinian lines because Charles Darwin was very popular in the late 1800s. And here's what he said. He said that as man evolves, so must the law of America evolve. Judges should guide the evolution of the Constitution. And so Langdell in the late 1800s introduced the now famous case law study, the case law method in which lawyers as they move through law school spend as much time studying the judge's decisions of the Constitution as they did the Constitution itself, sometimes much more so, by the way. And so in 1958, Chief Justice Earl Warren comes on the scene and he says this, and I quote, the Constitution must draw its meaning, now listen real closely, because he tells us his philosophical bent. The Constitution must draw its meaning from its words, no, here's what he says, from the evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society. Now, practically what that means to me personally is that what used to be decent is laughed at. And that what used to be indecent is now my right by my evolving progress as a maturing society. And that's what that means to me. And that's what I see all around me. And did you know Israel was in that position years before they were in the ruins here? Years before they were a very powerful people and very wealthy and had substantial power, and they begin the same process of satiety decline. They begin to rewrite the rules, to reinterpret the law of Moses, so that what they were saying at a point in time actually contradicted what Moses actually said. It was the same in Jesus' day. They begin to reinterpret, rewrite, and what was the result? Their society deteriorated morally. And finally, God said, enough. And He destroyed it. And he sent them into 70 years of humiliating captivity. And now by an act of his grace and goodness, he's brought them back to the land. And I want you to see here, they have learned their lesson. You know how you can see that? Well, just follow me for a moment. Look at the text. Look at verse 2. And I want you to underline these statements. Verse 2, when Jeshua makes this suggestion about building an altar, notice they're to offer burnt offerings on this altar. Now look at the last line of verse 2. As it is written in the law of Moses. We're not just going to set up an altar. We're not going to make it look good according to the modern day. We're not going to do it because of how it feels. 
No, we're going to do it exactly the way Moses said it. Right by the letter. Look at verse 3. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified of the peoples of the land, and they all... and, and oh, Excuse me. And they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the land. And I want you to notice, when they set up that foundation, or that altar, they set it on the foundation of the previous altar, which was prescribed in its dimensions and its place in the law of Moses. So they didn't just say, let's just set up an altar anywhere, or where it feels good, or where it looks good. No, they said, let's set it up exactly the way the Levitical law specified it, in the exact place. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, as they're celebrating these, this feast of booze, and as they're offering offerings, these burnt offerings, they do so, notice it says, according to the ordinance as each day required. Now, where is that ordinance? That ordinance is in the Word of God. And they did it exactly like the Word of God said it. Look at verse 5. It says, And afterwards there was continual burnt offerings also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals. Well, where were the festivals fixed? They were fixed in the Word of God. And they did it exactly the way the Word of God said it. Look at verse 10. When they're celebrating the laying of the foundation, they bring out all these priests and their apparel and trumpets and the Levites. There's symbols and praise. But look at the last line. All this choral production and this worship service is done, last line, according to the directions of King David of Israel. And where were those directions found? They were found in the Word of God. The point is, everything they did when they finally returned in their humiliation, everything was by the book. It was just by the book. The idea of someone just suggesting at this moment, after all they'd been through, of just doing it the way they wanted to, would have been unthinkable. But you know, it's not unthinkable when your life is dripping of prosperity. It's not unthinkable when you think you've got enough personal power to cover the deficits that your way will bring. But I'm wanting you to know, it's not the way of building a life. That way is a way of tearing down the life. If you follow God's way of building out of the ruins, at those moments, no matter how you feel, you do it exactly the way the book says it's to be done. And that's the way to rebuild a life. Let's look lastly in this rebuilding process. It says we must persevere through time if we are to see positive results from God's goodness. Time is a big issue here in this chapter 3. And look at verse 8. It uses the phrase, you might even circle it, now in the second year. The second year. That's important that you underline that because that's a time reference between the time that they built that altar in the midst of all these ruins to the time the foundation of the temple was actually laid. It took more than seven months to plan for this temple, to get people organized, to order the supplies that you see in verse 7 stated, to get everything ready so they could actually begin to lay out that new foundation and much more time before the foundation when we get to verse 10 was actually laid. Now why do I say that? Because in rebuilding a life, Time is a big issue with people. I have people come in, and they're very educated people. And they'll sit and they'll tell me, 
about their dysfunctional life in all kinds of explicit terms, their troubled marriage, and all this, and it's really heart-wrenching. But then we come to the place where all of that, and, and that person's flailing at all that, trying to make all that make sense, and their marriage in the process of deteriorating, uh, that person and their spouse will be sitting there, and the person will turn to me and say, well, how long do you think it's going to take to, you know, kind of fix us? And, 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 I, and really, in, in, in times past, when I was a young man, I'd, I'd usually say, well, let's just start meeting, because I really didn't know. But as I've watched the people who have succeeded, watched the people who've really worked it through, watched the people who've really changed their life, depending on the circumstance, I'll look at the person and I'll say, well, maybe one to two years. And they'll go, what? I mean, they can't believe it. I mean, we're talking about super counselor here. Two sessions and you're out of there, whole and healthy. No, it doesn't work that way. We're talking about we, we, we're coming to, to, to consecrate our lives to God. We're going to do it His way. But we've got so much working against us in our old habit patterns. And we're talking about a new way of thinking according to the book, which, which at points is going to seem ridiculous to us. And sometimes it's two steps forward and three steps back. And we're talking about trying to work all that out all of that toxicity out over a period of time, and sometimes it takes years. For full redemption, it takes more than a lifetime. And it's not going to happen overnight. And so at that point, the element of time comes in. And that person not only now consecrates themselves for a moment, but they have to ask a much harder question. And that is, can I see this thing through believing that I would see the goodness of the Lord at the end? I love psalm, the psalm of David that says, I would have despaired in this moment had I not believed that I would one day see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You know what separates faithful people from unfaithful people? The thing that separates those two from one another is usually that one can see the end and tenaciously hangs on it till they get there. But so many people last only for a week, only for a month, and then they bail out into a whole new reconstruction process, as I said, that only brings double trouble. It doesn't relieve them of their trouble. This is so important, but you know, Israel persevered. They went through weeks and months of planning and nothing was taking place. After seven months, there was just still an empty field, but they stayed with it. And then over time, the foundations of this new temple were actually laid and they began to rejoice. They saw, they tasted the positive results of their labor. Look there in verses 10 and 11. It says, now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang. See, they finally gotten there from the despair, from the terror. They were singing. And they were praising God for He is good, for His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. They could feel that. And all the people shouted with a great shout, when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid. 
what a wonderful moment it is when I talk to people that I work with and they call back and they say, it's working. We're getting there. We're tasting it. And it's good. It's so much better than what we ever imagined. And that happens when we follow this consistent pattern that's laid down, not just in this text, but in others, to wholeness and to health. God's given it to us. And these people are a model for us. Now there's a reality I want to speak about before we close this text. And it's found in the last two verses, 12 and 13. I call it the emotional reality of rebuilding. Let me just read it to you and you'll, you'll see because it puts a funny twist on the end of a great story. It says, yet, yet, many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, they didn't shout for praise. They wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is why I love the Scriptures, because it's real life in action. Because I've seen this thing. See, right in the midst of this rebuilding, and you see it all the time, right when my marriage, my new marriage is finally starting to grow, or my new parenting style is finally trying to work, or I'm doing things by the book and I'm finally beginning to taste it, suddenly a bittersweet moment creeps in. And for these people, it was the old people who saw the first temple. And, and as the new temple was being laid, they were reflecting back to the first temple that was far grander than this one. And they were saying, Gosh, what? What if we had just been faithful? What if we hadn't turned our back on Yahweh? What would Israel be like now if we'd have been as obedient then as we're trying to be now? What would He have done with us as a nation if we would have stayed pure to Him through all that time rather than to have to go through this horrible process of humiliation? Where would we be now? You know, I see people do the very same thing. They're rebuilding their lives and they'll say to me something like this, just in a moment, just in a real moment of real life. They'll say, you know, Robert, if only I had done this in my first marriage. It's not to take away from their next marriage. But they're starting to think, gosh, if I'd have just known this. If, if only I would have handle myself as a parent this way with my first child. It's kind of bittersweet. There's a little tear there. If only I'd have had some mentor to help me think about this in handling my first company. There's still joy there. But it's bittersweet. That's the reality of the Scripture. So what have we learned well, we've learned that the pattern of rebuilding your temple, your temple, follows the exact same specifications that are found here. And by the way, as I've mentioned, if you go to several other texts and I could show you, these texts or these exhortations of text by the apostles or prophets, they follow this same pattern over and over. It's the standard pattern of humanity rebuilding itself to the glory of God. It starts with returning. It moves to consecrating. It then moves to submission. And it stays with it in perseverance 
and then it crescendos in the goodness of God. You see, this text is not about something just hard to do. This text is about something good God wants to give you. See, all through this text is the goodness of God. And on the front end, when they were feeling terror, they didn't feel that. But on the back end, when they were rejoicing with that foundation, they rejoiced because they experienced the goodness of God. That's what we want you to experience. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.